Hi, I'm James. And I'm Anthony. And this is Words and Numbers, presented by FEE, the Foundation for Economic Education. It's almost a foregone conclusion that this will irritate me, but <laughs> what's new and exciting in your world this weekend? I've been noticing over the past month or so, the news headlines reporting the number of COVID cases, not deaths, though they report those also, but specifically cases. Our friend Nathan Benefield at the Commonwealth Foundation here in Pennsylvania has noticed it as well and has crunched some numbers for us. You can find Nate's article in the show notes. As of today, Pennsylvania's Department of Health website shows 121,000 confirmed COVID cases in Pennsylvania. If you look at the daily numbers, the website shows Pennsylvania adding around 700 new cases daily. What Benefield points out, but the Department of Health does not tell you, is that almost 80% of those cases are classified as recovered. That is, 80% of the confirmed cases are people who at one point tested positive for COVID, but who have not shown symptoms for at least 30 days. What that means is that the number of active COVID cases in Pennsylvania is not 121,000, but less than 27,000. What's also been bothering me is that the media provides no context for the data it hypes. For example, what does it mean for someone to be a COVID case? Does it mean the person is at death's door, in the hospital, but recovering, at home in bed, or simply carrying around extra tissues? In offering no nuance to the data, the media portrays all COVID cases as dire emergencies. Again, Benefield offers the missing nuance. Currently, 2.5% of active COVID cases in Pennsylvania are hospitalized. That's 675 Pennsylvanians, or five thousandths of 1% of the population of Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania's hospital occupancy rate has risen from 52% on April 1st to 68% today. That roughly matches what's happening across the country. But the number of hospital beds occupied by COVID or suspected COVID patients has fallen from 6% on April 1st to less than 4% today. Politicians told us that the reason for the lockdown was to flatten the curve to prevent hospitals from being overwhelmed with COVID patients. But even at the peak, COVID patients in Pennsylvania were occupying only 12% of hospital beds, and still 40% of hospital beds were empty. It will be a while before the complete data emerge, but with each passing month, two things are becoming more evident. First, COVID may never have been a crisis of a magnitude that required shutting down huge swaths of the economy. Second, in its quest for people's attentions, the media is becoming more desperate to present COVID numbers in the worst possible light. All right, and I've got a couple of questions for you on my news item of the week. You often talk about the federal income tax and how it began. Do you remember the story of how it began? The rate was like, what, 2%? And it was hitting the top, you know, whatever it was, the rich people of the time, however you define rich. All right, so I've got another quiz question for you now. Do you know who Rob Bonta is? No, I don't know that. Rob Bonta is a California assemblyman, and it's his big, smart idea to implement a wealth tax in California. Again, with the wealth tax. Yeah, but this one is really special because it's only to hit the top 30,000 or so wealthy people in California. So it's a very slim portion of the population, but you can't outrun it. 
because what's going to happen when they put a massive wealth tax in for the wealthiest people? Those people are going to do the smart thing and move out of California. Right. Bonta's tax keeps coming for you 10 years after you left. Yeah. You know, I think I saw something about that and I didn't understand how he can make that work. How does California reach into your pocket after you're gone? It's a little befuddling to me too, but I'm pretty sure they'll come up with something. And I think the smart play here is if you're one of those 30,000, you should be leaving right now right, before yeah. this law gets written in. Of course, they might just have an ex post facto version of the law that anybody who moved out after they heard about it still gets screwed in the end. This is the brave new taxation world that we're looking at. The state of California thinks that they can tax you up to 10 years after you left the state of California on wealth that was created as you lived in the state. Right. This is not income. In other words, it's already been taxed. What they're trying to tax now is what was left over after they taxed it the first time. Yep. This is the big giant haircut that they're going to apply after the fact. And every rich person in California should be very concerned about this because they're coming for you and they're making no bones about it. You should get out right now. I don't know what comes next. They've taxed so many people at such a high rate, there's nothing left to do, right? What are they going to start doing? Taxing Arizonans next just because you live next door? Because we're in close proximity. <laughs> uh, that I think that's probably not far from right. As bad as this nonsense is, it always gets worse. Keep that federal income tax story in mind. It was designed only to hit the wealthiest yep. of the wealthy and only designed to hit them in a relatively minor way. Yep. A generation, two generations later, it's all the way down to the lower middle class, the working class. Oh, yeah. And it wasn't, uh, we should do a whole episode on that. It wasn't even a generation. It was within 10 years. The income tax was extended down to the poor. Just astounding. If you think for one second that's not happening in California after they get this off the ground, you're out of your mind. Yep. Of course it's going to happen. Once a tax gets implemented, it only gets expanded from that point forward. It never goes away. And it never just treads water. More and more people will be hit by that tax over time. I'd love to know what the legal ramifications are. I mean, how much authority does California have to reach beyond its borders? It's a good question. I don't know the answer. Hmm. We'll likely find out soon enough. But, you know, in the world we live in, Ant, that really should have been the foolishness of the week. And yet it wasn't. <laughs> and you have? The good people of Wisconsin. Okay. Well, the, That's what I thought. The <laughs> yeah, the... The government of Wisconsin, there has been, and I forget which of the many subdivisions of the government it was, but one of the state agencies has declared that even if you're in your own home, when you go on to your Zoom call that defines your life, your work life at any rate now, you have to be wearing a mask, even if you're the only person in your house, because for some reason... Not wearing a mask when you're alone is problematic in a way that I just can't fathom what it might be. It's something about setting an example or what have you. But we have taken leave of our senses. <laughs> if a state agency can say, even if you're alone, if you're on a Zoom call for work, you have to be wearing a mask. What the hell is wrong with everybody? Do you recall, it was several months ago, one of the stories we covered Either the principal or the superintendent, whoever it was, some official in the school district, was talking about calling the cops on some kid because the kid appeared on a Zoom call with his classmates and had a BB gun on the wall behind him. I do remember that. The guy said it was tantamount to bringing a gun to school. 
that's beyond asinine. And yet here we are, beyond asinine everywhere we look. Yeah. If you have to wear a mask to do your job alone in your own home, I don't even know what to say anymore because that's just not right. There's no set of circumstances that could make that sensible. That's always idiotic. But I say government and idiotic in the same <laughs> breath, and I repeat myself. This week, Todd Zwicky joins us. Todd Zawicki is George Mason University Foundation Professor of Law at George Mason University Antonin Scalia School of Law, Senior Fellow of the Cato Institute, and former Executive Director of the GMU Law and Economic Center. Professor Zawicki is also head of the Consumer Finance Protection Bureau's newly created Task Force on Consumer Financial Law, which is charged with updating and simplifying consumer finance regulations. Professor Zawicki served as the director of the Office of Policy Planning at the Federal Trade Commission, as editor of the Supreme Court Economic Review, and has authored over 100 articles in legal and economic journals. He has testified several times before Congress on issues of consumer bankruptcy law and consumer credit, and is a frequent commentator on legal issues in The Wall Street Journal, New York Times, Washington Post, CNN, CNBC, Bloomberg News, and the BBC. Todd, welcome to Words and Numbers. Great to be with you. Todd, you're a very busy guy. Why don't you tell us the sorts of things that you do on a weekly basis? Well, I'm a law professor, and I'm also a senior fellow at the Cato Institute, as you heard in my bio. I focus a lot on consumer finance issues, but I also am very interested in the rule of law and the importance of the rule of law to the free society and the maintenance of the free society. I would say F.A. Hayek and James Buchanan are probably my two greatest intellectual influences. And so a lot of my work is at the intersection of the administrative state and the way it intersects with those questions of the rule of law and public choice theory. The thing you didn't mention is the thing that I'm kind of interested in. You're the chairman of the CFPB's new task force. Why don't you tell us about that for a minute? This year, I was on leave from teaching, and I am the chairman of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau Task Force on Consumer Financial Legislation, which is taking a long-range retrospective view of consumer finance law and regulation as it has evolved over time and looking forward. And really, our inspiration was a report that was done in the early 1970s from the National Commission of Consumer Finance, which was a Blue Ribbon Commission, which looked at the state of consumer finance and financial services in the 1970s and 1960s, and laid out a framework for thinking about the modernization of consumer financial regulation. So we're basically at a 50-year point, and it's a perfect time to reevaluate this because what you can really do if you look at American history, what you see is right around the 1910s and 1920s is where you first start to see the emergence of consumer finance. Really what the installment buying on time, if you've ever heard that expression, people using small dollar loans. And really what happened was during that period is when people moved from the farms, immigrants came in, they moved into the cities and for the first time really needed access to consumer financial products in a way that they did when they were working on the farms, growing their own crops and that sort of thing. Now they're dealing with seasonal unemployment, they're dealing with new health concerns, they're dealing with needing to furnish apartments, that sort of thing. And so you see the first initial wave of consumer finance in the 1910s and 20s that builds over time. By the 1970s, we sort of reach our mature level of consumer finance. And the other thing that starts to happen at that point, you first start to see 
really because of the first wave of technology, interstate transactions, department stores, for example, that run credit products and credit operations, Sears and those sorts of things that run across state lines. So the 1970s was really the first wave that dealt with national credit markets and the emergence of national credit markets in a mature framework. Today, obviously 50 years on, we're now looking at the internet. We're looking at not just national markets, we're looking at international, we're looking at global, we're looking at, in some sense, in fintech and these sorts of things, a world in which even sort of thinking in national terms is challenging, is different. So it's an opportune time to kind of take stock of where we've been and where we're going and what does a modern financial regulatory system look like going forward. What piqued our curiosity was a swipe that the Uncoke My Campus people took at you recently. And for our listeners, Uncoke My Campus is a group that is devoted to rooting out instances in which the Koch Foundation has given money to some higher education institution and kind of putting a stop to that or making it difficult. Although, interestingly, their focus seems to be ideological. What I hear most coming from them is not statements like Coke needs to stop funding higher education, but rather statements along the lines of free market principles are bad. Oh, and we can stop that by preventing Coke from funding college campuses. And I can give you an exact quote from a recently published article, which we'll link in the show notes for you. Zawicki is not an advocate for consumers, but for corporations. This sort of commentary doesn't seem to lead back to some sort of anti-Coke sentiment. It seems to be more anti-market. Todd, I wonder if you could tell us about your interactions with these people and what we should be thinking about these sorts of comments that they make. Well, I've had no actual interactions with them. I've seen what they've said on the internet and I've seen the way they've taken videos and spliced them and that sort of thing. What I can say is that I don't do consulting for corporations. I don't work for banks. I've never worked for a bank or anything like that. And I just believe that this is an area in which decades of economic research and centuries of historical analysis shows that a lot of paternalistic regulations that are ostensibly designed to protect consumers end up hurting those who they are most supposed to help. There is a completely appropriate, in my view, I've written a lot on what the proper role and the useful role of regulation is in protecting consumers. But by and large, allowing consumers to make choices, giving consumers authority to control their own lives, in the end, I think overwhelmingly historical and economic data reveals that that's the best way to help consumers is to increase their choices, to empower them to shop for the products that they think are best for American families and really just primarily leave it up to people to make their way through the world and then use regulation as a way to prevent fraud and deception, to make it easier for consumers to find the products that they need that'll make their lives better for themselves and their families. So I don't understand I've observed them taking swipes at you, and I've observed them taking swipes at several other academics I know. And in each instance, they seem to miss the point. You talk about the problems with anti-price gouging laws or the problems with minimum wage laws and these sorts of things. And 
the goal, and I know this is the goal because I would say the same kinds of words, the goal is that we're looking actually to help people. The goal is to help the poorest, to help those who are in bad circumstances. We're interested in cleaner environment, lower cost college, better health care, all the kinds of things you would expect that the Uncoke campus people would also be interested in. And yet somehow it seems they can't get past the words that you're using to understand the goal that you're looking for. And they just write you off as being pro-corporation. I think that's right, Anthony. And really the point here is this mindset has kind of evolved and I won't attribute it just to the Uncooked My Campus, but that regulation is somehow a continuum between more or less regulation. And more regulation is good for consumers and less regulation is good for corporations or banks or whatever. This is especially pronounced in the area of financial regulation. I don't care what happens to JP Morgan or Goldman Sachs or whatever. What I care about is what happens to you and me and my mom and my kids and my friends and everybody else. Can they get access to the financial products that will make their lives better? Ayn Rand once said, money is frozen energy. And getting access to bank accounts, getting access to financial products, getting access to mortgages in a competitive market, empowering people to make those choices, by and large, makes people's lives better off. And so this idea of just thinking about more or less regulation and more regulation being good for consumers and less regulation being good for banks, I think misses the point. I think that a better way of thinking about this, I have written, suggests that there's what I call market reinforcing versus market replacing regulation. How do we use regulations that enable markets to work better for consumers? That's the value here is making markets work better for consumers because this is the lifeblood. Access to financial products is the lifeblood for American consumers. And that should be our starting point, I think, with respect to regulation. And that's what I've consistently said. I've drawn this distinction numerous times between market reinforcing and market replacing regulation and thinking about how that should play out. And so I think this dichotomy, this idea that there's a zero sum game between banks and consumers is not the right way to think about it. What we should think about is how do we think in terms of regulation that's good for consumers, good for the providers of financial products, and good for the economy at large. And I've made a lot of examples of situations like that in my research that basically says, here's a way of thinking about this. It's a positive some way, a way in which regulation can empower consumers and improve economic success in the autonomy of consumers, rather than restricting choices under the name of simply protecting consumers. Todd, I want to press down this road just a little bit more, if you don't mind. It's always seemed to me that you could poll just about anybody and ask them what a perfect situation would look like. And people widely agree on ends, right? So we want the poor to be less poor. We want children to be well-educated. Everybody seems to agree on these things. It's the means that turn everybody against one another. I'm wondering if you have any notion as to why those fights get so bloody on the mean side when we could admit to each other in good charity that we all do more or less agree on what the outcome ought to be. It's a great question. I think part of it is that markets are mysterious to a lot of people. Markets are especially mysterious to a lot of academics who don't really understand how wealth is created. I mean, the whole notion of spontaneous order and the way in which the market is a spontaneous order, Hayek won a Nobel Prize for this. We've been talking about this for, what, 80 years. 
and people still don't really appreciate it. I would say it's especially difficult in the area of financial regulation, which is to say that the financial regulation is an unusually difficult area precisely because banks have been so protected and so coddled, and we've bailed out banks for their stupid decisions in the past. We have protected banks from market discipline in a way in the past. For decades, banks got away with being completely regulated and protected from competition and were not very innovative and didn't provide very good products. And so I think that there is some built up historical reasons why people are skeptical about the ways in which markets work for banks. Unfortunately, and I've pointed this out in various areas, there's also a very unseemly history in American history and the criticism of financial institutions. I'll give you an example, which is one of the great innovations in financial products in the United States was car loans. What most people don't think about when they think about consumer finance, and we talk about this in my book that I co-authored, Consumer Credit in the American Economy, and even Adam Smith made this mistake, to tell the truth, which is he thinks of consumers and consumption as being sort of wasteful, eating your seed corn, consuming today rather than saving up for things. What people don't appreciate is most of the reasons why people use consumer credit is for investment purposes. Think about a washing machine, your simple washing machine in your house. What is the value of a washing machine? Well, it's the opportunity cost. The opportunity cost is that otherwise you got to schlep to the laundromat every weekend with a pocket full of quarters and waste hours at the laundromat and pour quarters in the machine. Instead, you can make a capital investment and buy a washing machine. When you buy a washing machine or a stove or a refrigerator or a bedroom set or a house or a car or a student loan, those are all capital investments that provide a return over time. That's no different from when a business buys a new delivery van, when a business decides to invest in a backhoe rather than hiring day laborers to dig a hole. It's capital product that provides a stream of services over time. Cars are a good example, which is in the 1920s. One of the reasons General Motors overtook Ford so rapidly as the largest car dealer was one reason was because they made more stylish cars. But the other reason was that in the 1920s, they rolled out the GMAC plan, the General Motors Acceptance Corp. And they said, basically, here's what you can do. We'll give you the car and you can use the car while you pay for the car. It's a capital good. And you still have the car after you pay it off. Henry Ford, who was a notorious anti-Semite, as you might know, there's a lot of good things about Henry Ford, but he was terrible anti-Semite and he promoted the protocols of the elders of Zion and everything else. Henry Ford basically said, well, here at Ford, we don't believe in credit because that's, you know, just the bankers getting their hooks in the good of American consumers. So we'll let you buy a car on layaway. So instead of giving you the car and allowing you to drive it, you can send us a check every month. And after about 10 years, you'll have saved up enough money and we'll give you a car. Meanwhile, ride the bus, right? And so there's this kind of unseemly anti-banking history that goes back to even capitalists like Henry Ford, that's also part of this notion of using money for productive purposes, this notion of borrowing that consumers can borrow like a business can borrow and make investments that are actually positive sum investments is really hard for people to wrap their heads around. And it's quite likely that for many listeners, this is the first time you've ever heard of thinking of household consumption as being a form of investment rather than consumption. But when you look at the average household balance sheet, what did people borrow for? Mortgages, 
cars, human capital investments of student loans, and consumer durables, all of which are capital goods. And yeah, there are people who live beyond their means and buy too many pizzas and beers and do consume their seed corn. But the data reveals going back decades in American history, that's a small part of why consumers use credit. It's mainly to make these household investments that are no different from a business making an investment. Sometimes they go bad. Sometimes they turn out not to be positive, some investments. Sometimes the world turns against you and you default. But that's why we have a whole nother system to deal with people who can't pay their debts and how we work that out and everything else. One of the complaints that the Uncoke My Campus people lodged at you recently is that you, going back to 2008, see mortgage borrowers not as victims of banks. Their premise is that every homeowner who went under went under because of the evilness of the banks. Can you speak to that a little bit? I've written extensively about this, Anthony. The data on this and the economics on this are unambiguous and it goes back decades. Yes, there have always been consumers who are defrauded. There may have been more consumers who were defrauded during the financial crisis. That seems quite plausible because of what was going on, that at least some consumers were the victims of fraud. But that's not everybody, which is to say that for the reasons I was just saying, houses are investments. Houses are usually good investments. Sometimes a house is a bad investment. And what we know and what I've written in my research is that you can think of mortgage default as being like an option. And so every month you have an option, you have a call option, which is every month you could pay your mortgage and that will preserve the right that after you do that 360 months in a row, then you own the asset. So paying your mortgage this month allows you to pay your mortgage the next month, the next month, and the next month. Or you can exercise it as a put option and you can basically give the house back to the bank. Now, what you would expect and what the absolute decades of research show on this is as the value of exercising that option goes up or the cost of exercising the put option goes down, people are more likely to exercise the option. So what we know is one of the big reasons why the foreclosure problem in some areas became a foreclosure crisis is that when houses fell by 80 or 100 or $120,000 in areas that were overbuilt, people rationally recognized a bad investment when they saw it. And the bad investment was continuing to pay for a house, say pay $400,000 mortgage on a house worth $300,000. And so they rationally exercised their option. And I've been pretty consistent about this, which is that when a consumer rationally responds to incentives, that's not a consumer protection problem. Banks should not have made those loans. In my view, we should not have bailed out banks that made loans that gave people that sort of incentive by giving them a nothing down mortgage combined with, say, a negative amortizing interest loan. But the reason why those were bad loans was the incentives that they created. Banks basically got away with making really stupid loans that created bad incentives <laughs> and then got bailed out <laughs> on the back end. And so as far as I'm concerned, as an economist, consumers make investments. You make an investment was basically my view. And I don't see why saying that consumers are smart enough to recognize a good investment from a bad investment somehow makes me anti-consumer. <laughs> this goes back to, I think a lot of people aren't aware of this, the savings and loan crisis of the 1980s. I was in college at the time. And I can recall my economics professor talking about the government bailing out the savings and loans, saying this is a horrible mistake 
because it's sending a signal to banks that you can be irresponsible in lending and the government has your back. And lo and behold, it was almost to the date 20 years later that we had the housing crisis. Yes, this entanglement of government with finance goes back a long way. It's gotten even more entangled over time. I've written pretty extensively about this, about the interrelationships between politicians and regulators and banks. Charles Calamaris has written some great work on this, that the financial system in the United States for a long time has been intertwined with the political system. And so those who express concern about that intertwining, I think are on good grounds. I share their concerns about government enabling this kind of irresponsible behavior. I think you can also look at history and you could see the way in which government regulation, the savings and loan example being a good example because of the inflation and that sort of thing, government regulation, government combined with you know crazy monetary policy in the 70s brought the savings and loan scandal to a head. And so the financial system itself has been largely coddled and protected from market discipline in a way that a lot of other sectors of the economy have not. And so I share a lot of the concerns that perhaps those on Coke My Campus or whoever has about the ability of the financial system to protect themselves from competition, to protect themselves from accountability and the like, as we saw in 2008. One of the criticisms that the Uncoke My Campus people have lodged at you is your resistance to interest rate caps. Interest rate caps are what's called usury ceilings are the most longstanding traditional way that people try to regulate credit. And basically the idea is we're going to protect poor and vulnerable consumers from having to pay high prices for credit. This debate goes all the way back to Adam Smith and Jeremy Bentham. I and mean, most people thought Bentham had won that debate, but it's an idea that's evergreen. It keeps coming back. And what's sad about it is one understands the impulse to have a high interest rate credit card or high interest rate mortgage or high interest rate payday loan, whatever the case may be, you could see why there might be an impulse to think that you can protect consumers from high prices simply by saying you can't charge high prices. <laughs> But the problem is, is that what we have learned again and again and again, tragically and sadly, is that the unintended consequences of interest rate ceilings or usury ceilings, as they're called, really ends up hurting the people that they're most intended to help. Three things basically happen. The first is you can think of a loan as being like any other price. It's like squeezing a balloon. And you can regulate the interest rate, but you can't regulate necessarily the terms of the contract. So. Why is it today that most credit cards have no annual fee, for example, whereas credit cards in the 60s and the 70s did have an annual fee? Well, the reason was in the 70s, there were strict interest rate ceilings. Because lenders couldn't charge a market rate of interest, they ended up just tacking on an annual fee. And annual fees are especially bad for poor people because they're regressive. Everybody paid the same $40 annual fee, regardless of whether you had a $20,000 credit line or $500 credit line. So first you get term repricing, which makes pricing less transparent. The second thing you get is what's called product substitution. One of the great things that's happened since interest rates on credit cards were deregulated in the 1970s was the proliferation of bank type credit cards, Visa, American Express, Discover, and MasterCard branded products. Prior to that, the overwhelming amount of credit that people got was from department stores and installment lenders. And so why did people rely so much on department store credit? 
because basically what department stores would just do is bury the cost of the credit and the price of the goods they sold. So there were some great studies done in Texarkana, Texas, which was a perfect example because Texas on one side of the state line, you know, the city divides Texas and Arkansas. Texas had basically no interest rate ceiling. Arkansas had the strictest interest rate ceiling in the country. And what they found was the exact same refrigerator cost 8% more in Arkansas than it did in Texas because people buy refrigerators and other appliances on credit. The other thing we saw was that Arkansas was also the pawn shop capital of America. Well, people who needed cash credit couldn't get it at a 10% interest rate limit. And so they could either pay inflated prices for goods or if they needed cash credit, they'd have to go to a pawn shop or some other lender because they couldn't get a credit card. The third thing, and I think it's most sad and tragic, is loan sharks. We think of loan sharks as being Hollywood figures, the godfather, Tony Soprano and the like, but loan sharks are a reality in American history. Around 1970, when a lot of states still had interest rate ceilings and before interest rates were largely deregulated, the leading expert at the time estimated that the illegal loan sharking industry in the United States at the time was about a $10 billion industry. In modern dollars, that's about $69 billion of leg breakers making loans. To give you a sense of the size of that industry, the entire payday loan industry in America today, online and bricks and mortar combined, is estimated to be about $34 billion. Wow. The loan sharking, leg breaking industry in the United States and in current dollars is about twice the size of the entire payday loan market today. When Fat Tony Salerno, the head of the Genovese crime family, was indicted for 14 counts of loan sharking and, in fact, one count of criminal solicitation to have somebody's legs broken, he was running about half a billion dollars a day in his territory in New York City. In 1968, Richard Nixon pledged, as part of his Republican platform, to go to war with the loan sharks. In 1968, a United States Senate report said that illegal loan sharking was the second largest revenue source of the mafia behind only illegal gambling. We had generations of Americans, of low-income wage earners who were preyed upon by loan sharks. And these were not lovable characters. These were people who broke legs. These were people who cut off ears. These people cut off fingers. You can go through the criminal files and the criminal prosecutions in the 60s and 70s and look at this and you can see the impact that these people had on American families. It got so bad, Robert Kennedy, Senator Robert Kennedy, Senator-elect, when New York did an investigation of loan sharking racket, the New York State Legislature in the 1960s, Senator-elect Robert Kennedy sent a letter to the state legislature and said, you need to raise the usury ceilings because the primary reason we have a loan sharking problem in this state is because of usury ceilings. We have seen generation after generation that efforts to protect consumers through usury regulations have ended up hurting them, physically hurting them in many situations, and that the people who have been hurt the most are low-income consumers. And so I think the experience shows that the best way to help consumers, to empower consumers, is to make markets work better for them rather than thinking that by imposing price controls on consumers and restricting their choices, we're automatically going to make them better off. We need a system that protects consumers from fraud, that helps consumers to find the products that they need. 
but we should be very careful about taking choices away from consumers by imposing price controls and things like that. Todd, thanks for coming today. This has been actually a fabulous conversation. I suspect our listeners are going to like it, given how specialized this gets and how little we all know. So thanks for coming and shining a light on this for us. Yeah, those are great stories. My pleasure. Great to be with you guys. And that's all the time we've got this week on Words and Numbers. Be sure to join us next week when we promise to be even more interesting than we were this week. Until then, you can follow us on Patreon, Facebook, or Twitter. All the relevant information is in the show notes. And you can can email Anthony if you... You words can, and numbers podcast at gmail.com we, we should have just reserved moron at words and numbers.com for you this is craziness i got hate mail last week because i failed to remind listeners to send us email well you deserved it so there you go you've created this monster now you live with it until next week and have a sparkling week <laughs> see you next week james 